Hello, everyone. Welcome to the UNT MindSpark podcast, a great resource for innovation and making with a focus on the community. Whether you're a seasoned maker or someone interested in making, this podcast can spark inspiration for developing new skills and give insight to listeners who are new to makerspaces. Today, we are going to jump into a new series called Maker Life Stories. In this series, we will collaborate with makerspaces in Texas and throughout the United States with a focus on the maker mindset. Throughout this series, we will address the role of making, engineering, and tinkering inside different makerspaces and how makerspaces develop a maker mindset for students and people in their community. Today's episode features the University of Texas at Arlington's Fab Lab, a creative hub for students. Here, students have the ability to fabricate using 3D printers, CNC machines, sewing machines, and so much more. The UTA Fab Lab is highlighted as being the first MIT-affiliated Fab Lab in a Texas university and has helped ignite the spread of makerspaces. And joining us today are some of the very talented staff from UTA's Fab Lab. Morgan Shivers, the Fab Lab librarian and artist in residence, who amazingly has four simultaneously conferred degrees from San Jose State University. Jeffrey McCulley, the Fab Lab coordinator who interestingly enough graduated from UNT with a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. And Katie Music Perry, the director of the Fab Lab, who has published work and research focused on integrating maker literacies into higher education curricula. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so I think we the way like we will do this, I think we can go ahead and kind of start the conversation. And and that's kind of how I've been doing the podcast. I and Judy kind of came up with the idea for the MindSpark podcast uh, about a year ago now. And I've been the primary host. I'm slowly handing over since I'm about to be graduating. And I really hope it continues. We're trying to just reach out to other makerspaces. I really love working here at the makerspace. And um, yeah, so the MindSpark podcast, I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to any other episodes, but we're just trying to investigate topics that we're interested in and we feel like students would benefit from you know, hearing about if they had time to listen or, and stuff like that. Um, so the MindSpark podcast, don't, it's still very, very small in its infancy, but we're hoping it's something that um, a lot of students will find useful in the long run. I think it's a wonderful idea for how to, how to get this stuff out. Yeah. Uh, uh, talking about it with my dean a little while ago because it was like you know I've been writing all these like academic papers and mm -hmm. like that's cool but like yeah. how many people are reading those I bet yeah. a lot more people would would like listen to something than than they would get into some database and and yeah. look at graphs and all that I think people are I, I don't know like visual learners auditory learners like the more I hear about something I feel like it will you know give me more of a oh that actually sounds really interesting maybe i should go investigate that so yeah um so kind of the first question we have is uh just the inspiration behind makerspaces because i know you all work at the fab lab but what is your inspiration behind a makerspace in, like this this is in, if you are a person that wanted to make a makerspace like what would be the inspiration for you well, I think that, uh, you know, every makerspace needs to be really tied into its community because there's this seductive allure of the technology and the, the razzle dazzle of, of new tech and all that. But um, 
those can become paperweights real quick mm -hmm. if it's either a mismatch with the community who's going to be the, the user base mm -hmm. or if it's put in a context where you don't have people who know how to manage and maintain and operate those machines. Mm -hmm. So um, like we're a, a fab lab through the, through the MIT charter. So there's a specific list of equipment that we uh, need to have. And we have way more than that. Uh, based on listening to what our our students and faculty want and then building out our, our equipment based on being able to s support that. Mm. Um, but, you know, we have we have the luxury of being part of a, a major R1 research university. So we have a budget to have a very large space. But that's not to say that every makerspace needs to have that. Uh, you can do a lot of really good work that is really meaningful to people and empowers them. If, uh, if you do a good job of like listening to um, what people actually need and anticipating what people might need as they learn more and then kind of starting from there and then always being in that perpetual beta state. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy because I was just listening to this other podcast where they were talking about exactly that kind of system. It's like when you want to select some piece of equipment for a makerspace, you really have to look at the value to the users, the value to the community, and they also said you have to look at, you know, making sure that there's not a temptation on the side of, you know, us, the makers, because we get really excited about new technology. So we might just be like, oh, yes, this, this is something that we will love. But then if it doesn't, if it doesn't appeal to that, you know, community, then it's just, you know, a waste of resources in, in a sense. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I, I would, I think that the community is really just the key piece of a makerspace for for me, it's like, you know, someone, just the idea that somebody can come in with an idea and maybe not a lot of knowledge. And there are other people who also have their own ideas they're working on who are just passionate about being in the space and kind of learning how to use the equipment uh, can kind of work together to create something that none of them would be able to create individually. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the key of what a makerspace is for me. So yeah, it doesn't have to be about you know, big expensive technology. It just has to be kind of a, a, a coming together of minds to accomplish a common goal. Yeah. And I, I definitely love that interdisciplinary aspect mm -hmm. that makerspaces tend to have. It's just an open field for anyone who has an idea to work on, can come there and feel safe to work on it. Yeah, totally. So that, that's the thing that we, we really uh, jumped in with both feet uh, pretty early. Um, you know, the, the lab was, was open to all uh, mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Right. But what we found, and this was, so the lab started uh, at UTA in 20, October, 2014. Uh, I was still a grad student at UTA at that point, And I was, I, I got an MFA in, in glass and intermediate. And so I was using the printers to make molds and laser cutters and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what the admin at that time was finding was that even though it was technically open to all, really engineers were staffing the space and that meant that engineers felt comfortable using the space. Right. Um, and in my former life, I was a photo geek. And so, you know, cameras and all that tech stuff, I could speak that language. And so then joined, joined the, the team to kind of conscientiously help change that culture. So we did a lot of hiring explicitly outside of engineering and mm -hmm. also explicitly with people who did not have maker skills and did yeah. not conceive of themselves as makers because then we knew that once we do the training with them and once we skill them up that when learners come in who like jeffrey was saying don't necessarily have those skills 
that they would then be talking with people who could say like, it's cool. Like I didn't know how to do this either. Mm -hmm. And I learned and now I can teach you. And that's just empowering all around. It's been Mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly kind of the approach I took when I, when I started at UNT is, um, my background was in psychology. Um, so really like none of the equipment we had kind of literally had anything to do with, with my direct degree. Um, but you know, I was interested in it and I liked talking to people and working with people. And so I was able to use kind of the, you know, just kind of relationship building skills, um, to, I think, you know, facilitate some of that learning. Yeah. I wish I could hug you both for those responses because it's just, it's just something I really feel deeply about. Yeah. Um, and then, so we also wanted to ask you, how did you first learn about makerspaces and what in, interested you in working there? I'll go first on that one. So I think when I joined the libraries in 2013, um, I think makerspaces or having 3D printers in, in libraries was kind of a newer concept. And that was one of the things that drew me to UTA when I was applying for a job as a first year student success librarian there. Um, so that was my first real introduction um, was at UTA. They were crafting um, the Fab Lab at that time. Um, it opened just a couple of months after I started. And at the time, we didn't have any permanent full-time staff uh, managing the space. It was just staff from other departments that were helping out. We hired a fleet of student employees. Um, And so it was our administration who actually asked me and another librarian if if we wanted to get involved. I think they saw that we were young, take charge people and that we were spending a lot of time in the makerspace just because we loved the creativity and loved seeing what people were coming up with. And so that was kind of how I got looped in was just um, they needed some structure and some management and I was enthusiastic about the project and the potential for what makerspaces could be doing and then um, it was it was meant to be a kind of a temporary position six months um, as just an interim manager but um, I fell in love with the space so I've been there ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. And really a testament to like what we're trying to do um, and what we were just talking about as far as access and intimidation and people not necessarily feeling like makerspaces are a place for them. A lot of times it comes down to that invitation of like, I'm hanging out and I'm watching what other people are doing because I think it's cool. And it takes somebody else saying like, this is a place for you. How about you come, here's how you can be involved. Welcome, we want you here. And then, um, and then they don't, they don't go away after that. That's very true. Um, so just everyone else, what's been your experience? How did you first learn about makerspaces? Jeff, maybe you can go first. Um, so for me, uh, I mean, I was just kind of looking for jobs on the, whatever the UNT jobs website was, and I saw the description for the, the makerspace student assistant. And um, I had taken some 3D modeling classes in high school. And, you know, I knew a little bit about 3D printing and Um, So I applied and kind of learned more about what the space was and it just sounded really interesting to me. I, I think that a lot of people kind of have like see a 3D printer and that's kind of a a flashy kind of point of interest for them to kind of realize that a makerspace exists. Um, And so I don't know, I feel like 3D modeling and 3D printing was kind of my entry point into the makerspace. 
Definitely the same for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you? So I guess to an extent, the same that 3D printing was really my introduction to maker spaces mm -hmm. as a term. Yeah. Uh, I come from an art background. Uh, so I, like I said, I did um, photography, but then glass and ceramics and wood and metal and all sorts of stuff. So I was making uh, with my hands quite a lot. And uh, also touching back to what you were talking about, about the, the siloed nature of access to equipment on universities traditionally. Mm -hmm. uh, as a grad student, I was one of two people who got access to a, a 3D printer that the art department had, had gotten. Wow. And so I was really excited about like being able to, to use that. And then um, it was being managed like they managed a lot of other tech. Um, and, you know, they were really new in mm -hmm. 2013 or 14, whenever that was happening. And so uh, they weren't experts on it because it was just brand new. It was a new piece of equipment dropped in their lap. Yeah. And, uh, and then when, when the nozzle got clogged, uh, but I didn't know that at the time that that's what happened, um, they didn't know how to fix it and they wouldn't let me tinker with it. And yeah. so I, my research kind of stalled. And then I found out that the library had a, had a fab lab that had started up. And so I started going over there and then just started spending a lot of time there because mm -hmm. I gave, a, there were more tools other than just 3d prints mm -hmm. and you know, a thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently too is that we've we've done a lot of work both at, at UTA and as a whole maker community globally uh, to really make great strides in the past just few years about the quality of the machines that are that are accessible and affordable. Yeah. And so when I started doing this, like it was really, really common that you had like major stratification issues uh, mm -hmm. with your prints, even on a small scale, things were coming on un, unglued, um, delaminated. And, uh, and so the real hook for me early was that it wasn't push button. Like if it, if I, if I'm thinking back in my psychology, if I had, if I'd been able to push a button and just have the object, yeah. like, I don't think that would have been as exciting for me as mm -hmm. if it, if it was a process of like really pushing and figuring out how to get it to be as good as possible. Mm -hmm. And then that good as possible, what wasn't as good as I needed it. So I needed to think about it as a material. Yeah. and use like the you know abs solvent of acetone and like make us a, a putty to sand in mm -hmm. that other the filled in areas and then be able to make the mold to be able to make the thing in glass or metal that i wanted so really having it be part of a an ecosystem and yeah. not just that uh that touch point of like well i need this thing push this button here's that thing mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been as alluring but be, being introduced to that whole interconnected way that we can work with materials and digital fabrication to let computers do what they do really well mm -hmm. and then humans be able to do what we finesse and do do well that intersection is where i, I really have found a love for makerspaces yeah that's so true it's that's, so interactive yeah and i feel like i don't know like you can I, like i feel like generally nowadays things are becoming more just plug and play like you know cncs you just put in your design you push the button and that's it but i really want to like investigate that perspective more about really being more scrappy with it and going in there and learning more about the machines because i feel like like you probably would have more of a depth of knowledge just about the machines that you're working with but you know nowadays it just feels since since they've improved so much um it's just less and less that you're interacting with the machine and you're just interacting with software and they're like oh well not the nozzle is clogged well our <laughs> yeah. printer is down and we're not going to yeah. for the next two weeks 
yeah. Yeah. So when we do our, our training, that's a, that's a thing that I really try to reinforce with our, our new staff or interns or, or learners um, mm -hmm. is, is not just talking about like the workflow where you go from like, here's your perfect file prep and right. here's, here's the, the predetermined settings and here's the output you can expect. Right. Like, that makes things faster once you get to know it, but I don't want to start people there because I don't want it to seem like magic. Yeah. You want to like investigate the, the understanding, like how the machine is operating, how it's translating the file you're giving it into what it's able to do. What sensors does the machine have on it? How is it interpreting the world? And therefore when it's giving you a different reaction than what you're expecting based on what you're seeing on the file, think about what the machine is experiencing, like empathize with the input that the machine is getting. Mm -hmm. And then I don't in the trainings, like tell people what the, what the settings we've already figured out. Even if I already know is like that, that material needs to be like at least 80% power. If you're 30% speed or whatever on the laser cutter, but I'm mm -hmm. not telling them that at the beginning, I'm saying like, well, here it is. And here's the process of how you change it now parameterize and find it. So that then when they're doing their project, and they find some result that's not what they want, they, they understand how to get from where they are to where they want to be, instead of just saying, like, like you said, like, well, I guess it's just broken. Yeah, like, yeah. That doesn't help. So I, I definitely need to put that on a t-shirt, empathize with the machine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I'll go ahead and ask the next question. Um, are there resources that you feel like you use most when troubleshooting and um, learning something new? Google. <laughs> yeah, Google. Yes, yeah. so true. I mean, it totally depends on what the what the problem at hand is. I'm sure, depending on the software or the machine that we're dealing with, we've got different issues. But I think what we've encountered a lot, and kind of to Morgan's point, one thing we try to encourage with our students is that there is no ultimate source that knows all of the answers, and that while there are kind of there is kind of a hierarchy of knowledge and the the higher you go up the chain oftentimes there's more expertise um, a lot of times we're figuring things out with with all of our equipment just as much as our learners are um, people will bring in new types of um, new materials to use or just ask us about a capability that we've never tested and tried out ourselves before um, and so it really is kind of a blend of like, well, let's try it and see, and let's do a little bit of research to see if other people have already done this and if there are any safety concerns before we get started. Um, but a lot of times it's just going to the internet, finding forums, finding different different blogs and resources. Um, there, of course, you can always call upon different maker networks as well. Um, but a lot of times it's just that initial, like let's actually, if we don't have any safety issues at hand, like let's just go ahead and try it. And uh, let's let's Google it and see what we can find out before we get started. Because right. you yeah, will be surprised how much information is just already out there before you yeah. start, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, it's it really surprised me when I first kind of got into kind of the the maker world that um the level of like knowledge and like customer service is wildly variant like mm. um depending on the company that makes your machine there may be no customer support 
you may have to literally just go to Reddit and find somebody else who bought the machine and figure out, you know, find that discussion for it. Right. Um, and then there's, there are companies that have really good customer support, like a uh, polyprinter, I think is a really good example of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just kind of very related to what Morgan was talking about with kind of empathizing with the machine is developing that knowledge of how the machine works is going to be your best tool to troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. Um, just because if you don't understand how the machine works, even looking for answers on the internet is not going to help you out that much because people are going to be using jargon and information that is probably a little over your head. And so you're going to have to do a deep dive at some point. It's just kind of, when do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. Like when, it's not like when, when you, you get frustrated enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I totally back up everything. The others are saying, and to, uh, I think it's it's really important for us to be open with our students, uh, our employees, and the the learners about our own ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. And not trying to present ourselves as if we know all the answers. And when they ask us something that we're not sure about, like we're honest about that. It's like, well, I don't know. Let's, what mm-hmm. do you think is going to happen? Let's yeah. let's figure it out. Yeah. Or um, you know, the other day um, I was helping a student on our embroidery machine, and uh, a an error happened. I was like, oh, okay, well that happened because this thing in your file and then did it again, even after fixing the file. I was like, well, that's funny. And so then we tested some things and then, uh, and then just showed her, it's like, all right, well, uh, I'm not sure what's happening. So let's go to the menu and, Mm -hmm. uh, or the, the manual and see, see what this is, what this error is tripping up for. And Mm -hmm. then kind of showed her the problem solving process we're going to test this and then okay verify that and then test this oh there's our problem it's all about that hidden that hidden information and like you know breaking the magic it's Mm -hmm. it's like none of this is magic it's all just cumulative knowledge and we can draw on it now in this wonderful moment in time that we've got with the internet and all that Mm -hmm. and uh and we can we can be more uh be more human with each other by just not trying to be like some expert in the white castle or whatever we're just we're just on the ground we're learning together absolutely and i think that, that um, sorry go ahead katie oh i was just gonna say that totally goes back to the first point we were discussing as far as community and welcoming people into the makerspace and mm-hmm. and um trying to to lower that intimidation factor mm-hmm. when you are vulnerable and you are saying like oh well i don't know why that happened mm-hmm. then the student isn't feeling like they're stupid because they couldn't figure it out and you're yeah. the expert that has all of the answers it's like mm-hmm. oh well we're pro- we're we're teaching problem solving we're learning together i don't feel as um intimidated to ask questions the next time because i'm realizing that i can ask somebody that i hold in high regard who has um a lot more knowledge than i do and they also don't know mm-hmm. um and that's okay so yeah. it's it all layers upon itself that, that's a huge lesson for me personally because my experience you know is kind of in that same kind of vein where the student comes in expecting that you're the knowledge person and you're you have all the answers and you know the first time when you falter and you don't have that information they're like what you don't know and and you know but i do think that that is the process of breaking the spell breaking that kind of like oh this is just all you know set up magically or something like that I definitely agree with that. Yeah, um, it, there. I don't remember where it was, but there was a paper that, that Katie and I had had written or a, a chapter or whatever. But in in process of coming up with and kind of 
breaking down what we had experienced in that writing process, mm-hmm. I realized that that you know our as we talked about the culture shift that was happening in the lab uh, from the engineering all to to this plurality that we have now, one of the main things that was um, kind of holding us back from making that big jump was that the students had tended to conceive of their knowledge as binary, as mm-hmm. they they know the machine mm-hmm. or they don't know the machine. Right. And if they knew the machine, then they would not admit when they didn't know something about it, because then that would push them into the the not know binary, mm, yeah. right? And so really trying to, uh, like Katie was saying, like embracing the fact that all of us, even at the highest levels, we mm. are still learning. And that is inherent to the to the situation, just makes it so it's easier for everybody to to be involved. It's easier to teach from that perspective. It's and it's easier to to teach students that they're able to teach from that perspective, and it's easier for the other students to learn from that perspective. Yeah, and it, I feel like it also improves your relationship with your coworkers because you know you can rely on each other for information and not feel like one person has to have all the resources or something, uh, kind of something like that. Um, let's go ahead to the next question because we do have a lot uh, to ask before uh, we leave. The next one is, what skills do you think that makerspaces contribute to student engagement in the classroom and in the real world? And anyone can jump in on that one. I think um, one thing that, you know, we talk about relatively often is that um, there's a really big gap between like theoretical design of something and actually designing it to work and like Mm -hmm. function in real life. any number of engineering students will come into the lab and they'll have an intricately designed model that they made in SOLIDWORKS and there will just be this fundamental flaw with it that makes it like not able to actually work in reality or they designed it in such a way that it can't actually be fabricated Mm -hmm. Um, and so taking those moments and kind of like highlighting like well you know in order for you to make this it has to be able to be made right Mm-hmm. So we need to make it makeable and you can do that, you know, through this way, this way, and this way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's a really uh, interesting step that I think goes above and beyond what a lot of normal classes will teach. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been doing uh, a research project for the past uh, several years uh, we call Maker Literacies. Uh, which is about our intentional integration into classes, especially into non-maker intrinsic classes in the humanities and and whatnot, uh, and then assessing the learning that that comes out of that. And so I I think that there's, we can get into the assessment component of it um, later if if y'all want, but the, like to back up what Jeffrey was saying, the, the distance in between the, the proposed solution and the actual solution is vast and is where a lot of the real learning happens. Mm-hmm. And so within the, the broader experiential learning framework, right, like that's, that's where it really uh, comes down to it is that you have to have some method of, of checking whether or not what you think is going to work is actually going to work mm-hmm. and embracing that iterative design cycle um, so that you can really build upon your own knowledge. I think that uh, one thing that we are probably going to be pushing against for the rest of our our lives is trying to integrate this earlier and earlier and earlier into people's experience in the educational system because it's it's still there's this sticky uh, tenacious 
pattern where departments want to like front load a bunch of theoretical knowledge and then have like the making thing be like a treat that you get to do as like a senior or whatever. And then it's like, well, you, you missed a bunch of like really cool, uh, opportunities mm -hmm. to build this knowledge earlier and to be able to then make even better things when you're a senior because understanding the math behind it is great but it is ultimately a separate problem from making the thing actually makeable and right. workable mm -hmm. and it also applies on the reverse side because in that process i think you know as makers we will help improve the technology itself because as you're talking about that iterative design process, you might then stumble upon something that you're like, well, maybe if we did this a completely different way, maybe that would help other people. And then, you know, I feel like that's where things kind of grow organically uh, mm -hmm. you know, to make an impact. Totally. Um, so I, I, do you want me to ask the next question? Yeah. Um, so this ties into what we've talked about uh, before, um, but do you have any personal experience with imposter syndrome as a maker? And can you tell us how you've dealt with it? Yeah, so I can I can jump in on, on this one. Um, I, uh, like I said before, started from uh, photography in my art career. And so I never really learned Illustrator um, uh, until I started already having a full time job in the in the Fab Lab. I had I had done a lot, a lot, a lot of work in Photoshop and had done all of my laser cut designs by making them uh, by drawing with pixels and then uh, bringing it into Illustrator and doing a trace, which is not the proper way you would want to go. And then, and then I found myself in a position where I was like, okay, I need to teach a bunch of people mm -hmm. Illustrator now. Uh, I guess I need to really learn this, mm -hmm. but I was already in the process of teaching people from an incomplete knowledge set Mm -hmm. um, and really leaning on a lot of our, our first student employees who were graphic designers who knew mm -hmm. Illustrator to like pull a bunch of uh, knowledge from them. But like going, so I, I did feel that imposter syndrome when I was like put in a situation where I was like a professor's asking for help and it's like, so okay, I'll, I'll try my best to like <laughs> show you what I know how to do. And right. then um, I think that's, that's one of the ways I found that, that comfort with with like admitting the ignorance. And so like getting in front of a class uh, to teach them Illustrator felt intimidating. And then also because we used, we use Illustrator differently for digital fabrication than it is really designed to be used for web and graphic output. So even when I was doing this with students who knew Illustrator really well, I was sharing information that they didn't know about how to prep files for digital fabrication, right. but being really overt with saying like, you know, some of y'all in this class are probably going to know some tricks like that I don't know. Yeah. And so if, if you're seeing me do something and it's like, why aren't you using this tool? Yeah. Please let me know because I would love to learn from this process. Yeah. I definitely relate to that because I teach SOLIDWORKS here at the Makerspace and I'm definitely by no means like a SOLIDWORKS, SOLIDWORKS expert, but depending on the skill set in the workshop sometimes you'll have people who are completely new to solidworks and everything you do seems like you know magic and they're like ooh ah and then there's some people who are just really really skilled and sometimes you have a workshop and everybody's skilled in you know in that software 
And then it just ends up being more like a conversation. And then we all share knowledge and mm-hmm. kind of like build together. And then it, it just, it ends up not even being a class at all. It's just a discussion at that point. Well, it ties into that, that saying, I can't remember the original source of it, but like, you don't want to be the, the, the sage on a stage. You want to be the guide on the side. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, like you're saying, like when, when you get past that initial stage or that initial circumstance where people are complete novice and you get into a more like advanced conversation, then it becomes like you get off that stage and you're, you're talking within, uh, you know, horizontality. Mm-hmm. Peer yeah. peer. I think one thing that always helped me is the, you know, the makerspace is kind of like I talked about the idea is there's all these different things that, you know, not any one person is an expert at. And so it's really easy for me to be like, well, it would be unreasonable for me to be an expert in everything in this room. Right. Yeah. Um, and it also makes it easier to say just like, oh, that's cool. If you find some feature yeah. you, you didn't know about or somebody shares something new with you because it, it's a constant learning experience. So, you know, I, I kind of always feel like I don't know everything, but that's kind of the point. Like that's, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy jobs because I'm constantly able to learn new things. Right. Just to piggyback on that, I think that for whatever reason, our society kind of has geared us to feel like whatever job you have, you must have already met all of the criteria in order to have obtained that position versus Mm -hmm. saying, here is a person who is um, capable and smart and knows how to problem solve and knows a lot of the things that are going to be required and there's still a lot that um, you can grow into within whatever role that is so if you're a student who's learning if you're a student employee who's trying to teach the equipment for the first time or if you're a full-time staff member who's trying to provide leadership there's still aspects of any of those roles um, that you might know how to do pretty well, or depending on the situation, you may have never had to encounter before. And there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of joy and beauty in the childlike nature of being an amateur at something new. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what makerspaces um, help us to embrace is that there's all of these new technologies or just creative technologies that um, that you don't necessarily have experience with. And this is an environment that is very, um, that we're trying anyway to embrace as different from the norm of like, it's okay to come in here knowing absolutely nothing mm-hmm. um, versus a lot of other environments where it's like, you have to have already known something about what we're doing in order to even want to come in the doors. Um, so with that does come a lot of imposter syndrome syndrome for most of us, whatever the role is where we're trying to convince ourselves that like, everybody's looking at me to be the expert and know all of the answers, even though we're in this space where we're saying, you don't need to know the answers. We want you to just come and play and figure it out. We don't always extend that same grace to ourselves in whatever role that we're trying to take on. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like as a makerspace, we're just always trying to push that it's a learning center. Like we're all just trying to learn and grow. Um, We have so many more questions to ask you guys, and we would love if we could split it and do like a second segment later, because we are running close to our closing time here. I wonder if y'all will be open to do uh, doing something again, probably in the next month. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, Yeah, totally game. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, we really, really do appreciate it. This is a 
direct message to Jeffrey from Eddie, Nick, and Rob. They all say hello, and they want to hang out with you sometimes. So definitely, we they want to catch up with you and see what you're doing. I just wanted to throw that in there before you leave. <laughs> Thank you. We really appreciate you all um, taking the time to talk with us. It was really insightful and yeah. we're really thankful. Yeah, yeah well, thank Likewise. you so much for the invitation. We were honored to be invited. I think what you're doing with the podcast is so cool and we definitely look forward to the next conversation. We do too. All right, so this is where going to cut. No, no worries. It's thank you for joining us on this special episode of the MindSpark podcast. If you want to stay up to date with the cool things happening at the UTA Fab Lab, please be sure to check out their website and their blog at libraries.uta.edu forward slash news dash events forward slash blog. You can also keep up with their Instagram at UTA Fab Lab. If you enjoyed listening, please be sure to give this a thumbs up and review us on Apple Podcasts. We have more episodes like this coming, so be sure to subscribe. Until next time, stay creative.